Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Hannah Collins. She's a PhD student in oceanography at University of Connecticut. That's uh, in the Department of Marine Sciences. And uh, we're going to talk about microplastics and how it affects uh, clams and oysters and other you know, creatures in the sea. So, Hannah, thanks for coming. Hi, there. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Tell me a bit about your uh, background and how you got into this area of research. Yeah, so I got my bachelor's in biology from Gettysburg College back in 2016, which doesn't sound very long ago, but it feels pretty long ago to me. I spent some time working with freshwater mussels, actually, so kind of jumped right into researching aquatic systems. Yeah, I then took kind of a different job and ended up working at a salmon hatchery in Alaska for a couple of years, which was really interesting, uh, really eye-opening, and kind of reignited my sort of childhood passion for the ocean, right? And so I knew I wanted to I wanted to research the ocean, but I also really loved biology and really loved marine invertebrates, really loved mussels, oysters, clams, uh, those kind of animals. So I started applying for graduate positions and I ended up applying, applying to do a master's position here at UConn with my advisor, uh, Dr. Evan Ward. And so I graduated from my from the master's program back in the spring and kind of rolled right into doing a PhD here as well. So yeah, I'm solidly in in year two now of the PhD okay. program. Yeah. Well, great. So what, do you, what is your research about right now? What are you looking at in terms of microplastics? Yeah. So right now I'm researching specifically the microbial communities that form on microplastics. So as microplastics get out into the ocean, you know, they're colonized by a number of different bacterial and eukaryotic species. They're, they're a substrate for things to attach to in the ocean, basically. Um, and so there's a lot of growing evidence that that community that forms on microplastics, especially kind of in the early stages when a piece of plastic first gets out into the ocean, it looks pretty different than communities that form on other types of substrate. So, you know, a piece of seagrass that's floating out there, it's going to have different types of bacteria than, than a piece of plastic. And so what I'm investigating right now is how those different microbial communities on microplastics, specifically how they can affect whether or not they affect the bivalves that I am studying. So the, the muscles specifically is what I'm looking at. And well, so you're looking inside the muscles and everything to see if there's microplastics or how are you evaluating this? Yeah. So partly, so I have, I have a coworker, another lab mate of mine who looks at the types of microplastics that bivalves are ingesting. So they are suspension feeders, basically filter feeders, essentially. And they're filtering tons of microalgae out of the water, but as they're doing so, they are getting microplastics as well, because there's these really small plastic particles. So as a lab, we're studying which types of plastics they're ingesting, but also specifically, I'm looking at how those plastics with this associated microbial community how those could affect potentially the gut microbiome of mussels and oysters. Because what's kind of interesting is we know that they do have actually a gut microbiome. Yeah, well, I'm sure they do. (laughs) I wonder if there's anyone that's studying how, uh, you know, what pearls are formed, what happens to the microbiome of these creatures and how does it change and et cetera. But I know it's probably a different subject. 
Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah. So the, when the pearls are formed, it's um, right next to the shell, the, the mantle of the organisms so are kind of like the skin. That's what's secreting the, that material that forms the shell. So it'd be interesting to look at the bacterial communities that are on that mantle tissue. So what are you seeing in, uh, in all these bivalves? Like, is there a lot of microplastics and, uh, you know, I don't know, what do you think the circumstances are in which they, they take them in? Yeah. So actually what we're seeing is there's, there's not a lot of microplastics that kind of accumulate in bivalves. So bivalves are actually selective feeders. So they don't eat every particle that they capture. So they have, they have gills that are basically, they kept, you know, they use them for getting oxygen, but they also use them to capture particles out of the water and they can actually, they on those gills. And then also they have special organs that can select different particles that they either want to ingest or don't want to ingest. So if there's a microplastic that's, for example, too big, they're not even going to ingest it. So that's good news. But then also, just because of the way these organisms are so cleverly evolved to process tons and tons of particles per day, per hour, they have selection mechanisms on their gills, on special organs, and then also in their stomach. So actually what we're seeing is that even if they are ingesting some microplastics, they're basically pooping them out pretty quickly. So if you were to take, you know, take an oyster from, from the ocean, it would probably have maybe one microplastic in its stomach, maybe two. So we're actually finding that they do a really good job of kind of clearing those particles pretty quickly. Yeah. But I mean, each, each, I don't know. I mean, so I, first of all, how do uh, oysters and clams and all that, how do they breathe? I mean, they don't have gills like fish. So how do they take oxygen in or how do they, how do they respirate? Yeah. So they they, they have, right. Sorry, go ahead. Here's your question. Oh, I was going to say, I just imagine them opening their shell and going in a way and taking stuff in, you know, it's probably not accurate, but you know, they're probably with every respiration or breath or periodic opening of the shell, you know, this garbage is coming in and then they're maybe blowing it back out. But essentially if that happens in and out, in and out, in and out, it's, it's kind of as if it stayed there in a way. Sure. Yeah. So what happens when, so when they're respirating, so they, they do have gills obviously they're not on the, they're not on the outside of their shell. They're on the inside of the organism. So it's a little different from fish, but those gills cool. do serve. Yeah. So those gills do serve as the organs of gas exchange. So they are getting oxygen through the gills, but bivalves specifically, the gills have evolved to also capture particles. So it's kind of, they have two different functions. So they are getting the oxygen through their gills. They're also capturing the particles on their gills. Um, and then on those gills, there are cilia that are basically creating water currents. So every time the, you know, a muscle or an oyster is open, that's actually these cilia that are creating water currents, drawing particles in those particles are captured on the gill. And then they're basically transported to these organs of selection called they're called the labial palps. And so from there, they're either ingested if the animal, you know, so to speak, chooses to ingest that particular particle or they're egested or they're, excuse me, they're um, rejected and they're just spit back out. So yes, technically they're kind of moving in and out, but this happens with all types of particles, not just pl- microplastic. Yeah, but how much is the microplastic load that you've observed? And when there's a certain load, what does that do to its respiration? Mm-hmm. Does it cause it to do it faster or more deeply or less deeply, or maybe the, the quote unquote expiration or exhalation the respiration when it opens and closes, I don't know, maybe that alters. Yeah. So that's a good question. Actually, what what we do find that, you know, specifically we're talking about the ocean here, obviously where a lot of these, where these marine animals are living, um, 
we're actually finding maybe one to 10 microplastics per liter of water. So I'd say the load is actually a lot lower than maybe, maybe you would think just about thinking about plastic pollution in the ocean. So I'd say number one, the load is pretty low. And number two, so because these animals are, you know, they're basically, they're designed to process tons and tons of particles as they're feeding, you know, they, they have mechanisms to kind of shut down or reduce the amount they're feeding when there's just too much in the water in general. So not necessarily microplastics, but essentially what they'll do is they'll just kind of like stop feeding for, you know, a period of time until they sense that those, the particle load in the water is, is lower and they can actually process particles. To your question about respiration, you know, I'm not entirely positive. I don't study a whole lot of, of respiration, but some of the things that mostly affect respiration are temperature, for example. So they get, they'll, they'll respirate more, they'll, res- they'll respire more when the temperature is higher. Um, Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. But what I about the movement that, of the um, of the shell? Is that at all coordinated with respiration? And does the shells? I, I imagine them, I guess, opening and closing their shells, or mm-hmm. do they kind of sit partially open and then they close at night? Like, what happens to the shells, and how's the action of that affect? Yeah, so they, you know, they'll they'll have to open their shells to to respire and to and to pull in water with with oxygen. Um, you know, that's typically associated, they'll either be like a little open and they'll draw some water in and kind of, they can, they can pull oxygen out of the water when they're open, really open and and feeding, you know, they're also getting a lot of water in. So it's kind of correlated with that. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a large body of research about, about respiration and bivalves. I'm not, I wouldn't call myself necessarily an expert on respiration specifically. So I don't know how well I can answer that question for you. Okay. Um, well, what questions are you trying to answer with your research right now specifically? Yeah. So I'm trying to look at how the bacterial communities on microplastics, whether or not they're affecting bivalve gut communities. So I did some work on that with my, my master's thesis. And so long story short, they're not really affecting the bivalve gut community, which is pretty interesting. And so kind of moving off of that research, I'm now looking into whether or not you could use mussels as kind of a biological solution to microplastics. So because we know that they process large quantities of water, we know that they capture particles and they process them and either, you know, kind of poop them out or reject them. Um, When they reject them, they package them into mucus and those biodeposits sink to the bottom. So we know they can kind of remove plastics from the environment. So could we potentially use them as a biological solution to the microplastic problem and use them to remove them from the water? So that's kind of the direction my research is going. Yeah. But they package them up and spit them out, right? Yeah, they do. And so when they do that, do they they agglomerate or they get stuck to the ground or mobilize? Yeah. Yeah. So when they, when they package them up, so that's either in the form of feces. So as they 
you know, the particles move through their digestive system and get pooped out essentially. Or if they are rejecting a particular particle, they kind of package up a group of particles in mucus and spit that out. And that's called pseudofeces or fake feces. And both the pseudofeces and the feces are nice, big, dense particle, you know, groups of particles that are going to sink to the bottom and kind of sit on the sediment, basically. So it is going to remove them from the water itself. Okay. So you think maybe by uh, cultivating, let's say, a whole bunch of oysters in a place where there's a lot of microplastics, it might take a significant amount of them out of the water in the form of like goo on the bottom of the ocean? (laughs) Goo is a good way to put it. Yeah. So that's something we're exploring right now. We're actually looking at some freshwater mussels as well, seeing if you could do that in a freshwater system. They, They function the same way. You know, they still select a ton of particles and package them up in these really dense bio deposits. So that's what we're investigating the feasibility of doing that right now. Yeah. How do these creatures suck water in and spit it out? Is it coordinated against the opening and closing of the shell? Or so, do they have uh, other muscles or you know type of suction and blowing? They can yeah. Do? So it's, yeah, it's, it's actually cilia. So it's tiny, essentially, I guess maybe fibers is a good way to describe them. Tiny cilia that are on their gills. So their, their gills are actually covered in these cilia and mucus. And so the cilia, by the way they beat, they create water currents to draw water in. And then okay. the animal can also create the currents to push water out. Or if they do close their shell, um, that'll also push water out of the shell. Yeah. I just have the feeling that it's critical to, to know the position of the shell when they're performing different actions. Like if they, you know, picturing an oyster with its shell almost closed. So let's say if the cilia are sweeping stuff out, it's going out through like a narrow place where the, the velocity would be very high because the shell's almost closed. And if it's open, I would think you'd have less impetus for stuff to be pushed out of the shell. Yeah. So typically when you have a bivalve that's actively feeding, actively drawing in particles and, you know, processing them, they're, they're wide open. So they're going to be really open so that they can filter in as much water as possible. Um, and, you know, if you, if you have an oyster that's, that's not very open, it's probably not very active and it's, it's not really, it's not really actively feeding or actively creating those water currents. But what determines whether they're going to be open or closed? And like, is it a diurnal variation in this or how does that, um, you know, the creature decide what to do? Yeah, not so much. Um, you know, they, I'm not sure if there's a diurnal, a diurnal variation in that. Typically the food concentration in the water. So if they can detect, you know, through chemical cues or however we're a little, you know, then they, then they can open up. So a lot of it is is food concentration in the water that really stimulates them to feed, hmm, okay. to open up and feed. Yeah. So in addition to them, uh, you know, sequestering some microplastics, I mean, when they, when they do it, are they, um, so you said like it's like about one microplastic per liter of water, which is not a lot. So do they take yeah. in a bunch, kind of put them all together and then spit them out, you know, every so often, or are they spitting them out as fast as they can? you know, a little bit of goop with one microplastic at a time. Yeah. So it can kind of, it can kind of depend. So when, when a bivalve is, is feeding, you know, it's processing this water kind of constantly, usually, um, sometimes it'll stop and start back up again, but if it's processing, you know, for 20, 30 minutes, it's processing this water. Some microplastics will get spit out individually. If they're really big, sometimes they'll just kind of pop off. Some get you know, kind of agglomerated into this, this ball of mucus that gets, that gets spit out, you know, that, that happens pretty quickly. That can happen within minutes of a particle being captured. So it does happen pretty quickly. And then 
if it's actually ingesting the plastic, you know, that the ingestion of that, like the feces can be produced within a few hours to up to maybe a day or so, depending on how long it takes to go through the digestive system. So it really depends. And what's, what's kind of interesting is, you know, we're investigating what determines the selection of microplastics, you know, which ones they, so to speak, choose to ingest versus reject. And a lot of it is size dependent. So some of the really big microplastics, they'll just spit out right away, for example. Well, what about when a, I believe it's a clam makes a pearl and supposedly a grain of sand gets in there and more grains get in there and the, the clam can't get rid of it. So it eventually forms a pearl. So why wouldn't that happen with microplastics? So they're like pearls with a microplastic yeah. in the middle of them, sadly, or what? Yeah, I haven't necessarily heard of that. So, but I do know that when, you know, oysters, for example, form pearls, that's, um, it's not inside their digestive system. So it's when, you know, a piece of grit or sand kind of gets stuck in the tissue that's right on the shell and it can't get rid of it. So it, it creates this layer of essentially what is shell material to kind of protect the tissue from that, you know, that piece of irritating sand. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's, it might be feasible that you could have a microplastic that could stick and you could, I guess hypothetically, you could have a pearl formation from that. Um, I haven't necessarily heard of that being found or being, or being shown, but yeah. So again, that's kind of like on the outside tissues, not necessarily in the stomach of, of the organism. When it, it spits out microplastics with the goo around them, you know, or in the feces form, how is that different from, again, uh, you know, pearl formation? Is the location of the, the aggregation of it and the goo at the same point as where the pearl forms, or is it a different spot? It's a different spot, yeah. So pearl formation can kind of be anywhere along the inside of the shell. It kind of just depends if something gets stuck there. When the animal is spitting out microplastics, either through like rejected pseudofeces, which is that that goo, essentially that mucusy kind of, you know, rejected particles um, or the feces, you know, so that's coming out through the intestine, through the anus or right near actually. So right near the mouth is where the selection organs are. So there's very specific locations where pseudofeces and feces are produced, but with the pearls, it can kind of be anywhere along the inside of that shell. It just is, you know, kind of random as to if a piece of, of grit gets stuck there. Well, I would guess the, the, you know, microplastics over a certain size are just, they don't go anywhere. They get caught by the cilia and, and swept out. But if they're quote unquote small enough, then they enter the digestive system and then they're, mm -hmm. you know, processed another way. Yeah. So the processing in the digestive gland is actually really intriguingly complicated. There's a ton of different tracts and tubules essentially in the digestive gland. So you kind of have a you have a central stomach, but there's also smaller little ducts where if a particle is is small enough, it'll get really digested. And so that's that can take up to, you know, on the order of days for a particle to really be digested. But some particles that enter the stomach are too big to enter those, those tubules and those and those ducts. So they kind of move through within, you know, more of an on the order of hours, so to speak. So yeah, so I'd say, right. you know, some of those big microplastics, even if they are ingested, they move through pretty quickly. Do you see any where the microplastics have integrated into their shells? Like as the shell grows, does microplastics ever get caught in it and integrated into it? Not that I've seen, no. So the, the shell is actually created by a tissue layer. So it's kind of secreted based on this, you know, this matrix of, of organics and, and, you know, it'll secrete calcium carbonate to make the shell. I think it'd be pretty difficult for a microplastic to get stuck in there just based on the way that the shell is created. Yeah. 
but that's that's an intriguing question. Do you see that any of the microplastics get into the flesh of these creatures? You know, they can't get rid of it, obviously, and it just becomes a part of them? So not microplastic. So I think that is actually getting into a question about nanoplastics, which are even smaller. So you definitely have situations where a microplastic can kind of get stuck to the outside of the tissue of the organism. You know, they're kind of everyone's eating an oyster or a mussel, you know, they're a little goopy, they're a little mucusy. So you can have particles that get stuck to the outside of them, but because you constantly have water coming in and out of the animal, you know, those, those pretty much get, they get washed away and they don't really get stuck. You know, one potential concern that people have is that as, you know, as plastics break down and they make microplastics, the further breakdown of that, that would potentially create nanoplastics. So these plastics might be small enough to actually get through into cells and get into the tissues of animals. So it's pretty hard to study nanoplastics, obviously, because they're such, they're so small, but that would potentially be a feasible concern if you have these really, really tiny, tiny, tiny plastics that could then, you know, get through into the cells of the animal. But I haven't seen anything like microplastics. Yeah, has anyone done tissue samples to see if there's, you know, small bits of plastic in the flesh of the animals? Yeah, so that's definitely something people have looked at. One of the issues with microplastics research is partly that microplastics are everywhere. So you have to have pretty good contamination protocols when you're trying to look at microplastics. And so, you know, sometimes if you're looking at a tissue sample and you just happen to have like some atmospheric microplastics that drifted in that can contaminate your sample. But you also, in order to accurately identify whether whatever you're looking at is actually a microplastic, you have to use spectroscopy to actually pinpoint the fact that it is a plastic. It's not just, you know, a piece of sand or whatever it may be. And some of the problems associated, obviously not problems, but the the drawbacks is that those types of spectroscopy systems can only identify plastic down to a certain size. So you do get a little size limited. So I, I'm not sure how well people have been able to look at nanoplastics in tissue specifically. I know that people have looked at microplastics, but again, with bivalves, you know, because they are processing so many particles and we know that they do ingest some microplastics, even if they kind of process them pretty quickly, you know, you do find a couple in, in their tissues if you're, if you're looking at the tissues, um, but it's not, it's not huge numbers. Okay. Gotcha. Um, I mean, in general, do these, do these organisms attract more pollutants than let's say fish that you would eat or less? That's a good question. So, I mean, the, the way that they're getting at the microplastics is, is different from the way a fish would, you know, so they are processing like huge volumes of water over the course of a day. So they are you know, processing microplastics that way. I'd say, you know, a fish that's just swimming around and and happens to be, you know, getting getting some microplastics stuck in its gills or or in its stomach or whatever, you know, there may be fewer microplastics in a fish. Well, I shouldn't say that. So the fish may encounter fewer microplastics throughout the day, but I would expect that the fish might accumulate them more I would expect that they might get stuck in the fish digestive system more easily because just because of the way bivalves are designed to constantly be processing all these really small particles through, whereas fish digestive systems aren't exactly set up the same way, right? They're, they're not set up to process all of these tiny, tiny particles. Does that kind of answer the question? Well, that, that, that's what I mean. Maybe fish are yeah. more amenable or susceptible to the buildup of these and these creatures, mm-hmm. not as much because they can spit out a lot more. Yeah, exactly. So I think 
you know, that's a good thing, right? Good for people who like to eat shellfish, right? They're not really accumulating all of these microplastics. Yeah, no, hopefully not. So what other, what other questions are you trying to answer? So, yeah, I'm also looking more at the, the type of communities that make up their gut microbiome. I'm trying to see whether or not you could manipulate that gut microbiome, whether or not you could, you know, put a particular bacteria in the water with, with a muscle, for example, for an extended period of time, see if that bacteria would colonize, colonize in the gut and, and become part of that gut community or whether the gut community in, in bivalves is, you know, is really specific. Only certain types of bacteria can live in that environment. So that's kind of the other half of, of my research. Oh, well, what's interesting about the microbiome that you've observed now? What kind of uh, bacteria are prevalent? I know they're heterogeneous, but what are some major ones that you maybe see a lot? Yeah, so we're actually finding a pretty, pretty frequently that we have mycoplasmas in there. So this is a particular genus of bacteria that they don't have a cell wall. So they have to be, they live, you know, kind of associated with the cells in the gut uh, of bivalves. So they're pretty interesting little genus of bacteria. And we very pretty much all the time find those when we're looking at the community in our muscles, specifically, we've been doing a lot of work with muscles. And so what we also, so we, you know, we see that those are specifically associated with the muscles, but it's interesting because if you, if you were to take a muscle right from, right from the ocean and kind of dissect it out and use the techniques we use to look at, you know, what is it, what does its gut microbiome look like? There are a number of species in there that are, we know are just like oceanic bacteria that are just in the water and they just get processed through the stomach. So what you have to do is kind of take the animal in and let it, you know, keep it in some, some filtered seawater that doesn't have any bacteria in it. And then just let it kind of poop for a while and get everything out of its gut. And then once you do that, you can actually look at what we call the resident gut microbiome. So the community that's there all the time, it's not associated with the seawater. It's not associated with the food. It's, it's the community that's actually living there. So what are some of the differences that you've seen in the transient ones versus the ones that are always there? Yeah. So a lot of the the transient ones we see are, they're like cyanobacterias, which are really common members of just like the bacterial group that lives in the ocean. Um, Some of the groups we see that are part of the transient community are photosynthetic bacteria. And these photosynthetic bacteria definitely couldn't be part of the resident community in muscles because there's there's no light in the stomach of muscles. They need light to photosynthesize. So we've seen, yeah, so we've seen some of those members. And then there's, you know, a number of bacterial, not even species, because sometimes it's hard to get them, identify them to the species level, but groups of bacteria that we don't know a whole lot about, both in the transient and the resident community. So it's it's interesting and it's an interesting branch of research because it's fairly new. You know, people really have only been looking into, I mean, even human gut microbiomes in the last, what, maybe 10, 15, 20 years and, you know, marine invertebrate microbiomes, even less so, you know, we've only got maybe seven to 10 years worth of research that's just starting to kind of get at this. So there's a lot of questions we still have about, about these gut communities. But again, once you identify the bacteria, then what? Are you going to do metagenomics or what, you know, what does yeah. it tell you besides, <laughs> oh, we see this one and that one? Yeah, that's, that's exactly the point is, is, you know, we can, at this point, we're, we're pretty, we're pretty good at identifying what species are there, but we haven't really done any of that metagenomics yet to say, okay, what are these species doing? You know, there is a body of work in, in vertebrate species, obviously showing 
how intrinsically linked the gut microbiome is to health. And so our assumption is that, you know, a lot of those mechanisms are, are at play with the invertebrates as well, but we just don't know yet. And so, yeah, hopefully down the line, doing some metagenomics, um, looking at some actual, some function of these bacterial species. Well, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? Yeah, so they can go to our lab website, um, which is if you just, sorry, let me pull it up. But if you just Google Yukon Marine Sciences Ward Lab, we have a, a lab page. We have a Facebook. You know, I have, I have a Twitter account too. That's, you know, I post on when I have time, sometimes about research. My Twitter handle is at Oyster Cloister, <laughs> capital Oyster and capital Cloister. Yeah, I'd say those are kind of the best ways to keep up with what our lab is working on and, and our research. Okay. Well, very good. Hannah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.